Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lington. The Gray Center recently invited a group of administrative law scholars to contribute to a symposium about the rule of law in the administrative state. That symposium is forthcoming in the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty. In February, we traveled to NYU's campus to talk about the essays ahead of their publication. This episode of Gray Matters is part two of a three-part series featuring panel discussions about the themes of the symposium. This second panel discussion is between Boston University law professor Gary Lawson, NYU law professor Sally Katzen, and the Gray Center's co-executive director Adam White about the Roberts Court and administrative law. The Honorable Stephen J. Menashe, judge for the Second Circuit, served as moderator. Professor Lawson starts the discussion by presenting a new paper rethinking the 1947 Chanery II decision, which he labels an anti-rule of law case in the administrative law canon. Next, Adam White interprets Chief Justice John Roberts' approach to administrative law as one rooted in a concern for stability at a time when the country faces dramatic policy upheavals with every presidential transition. Finally, Sally Katzen describes watching the Roberts court with sorrow more than anger. She compares her experience watching the direction of legal developments today with how conservatives must have felt watching the changes during the New Deal. During the lively question-and-answer session, NYU law professor Richard Epstein asks about the fate of expertise in the administrative state, among other things. The next episode of Gray Matters will feature keynote remarks from the Honorable Naomi Rao, judge on the D.C. Circuit and founder of the Gray Center. And now, please enjoy panel two. Welcome to our second panel of our symposium, hosted by the Journal of Law and Liberty and the Seaboy and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. Uh, This panel will be about the Roberts Court and Administrative Law. Uh, It features our very own Professor Sally Katzen, who is a professor of practice and distinguished distinguished scholar in residence at NYU School of Law. She's a distinguished senior fellow at the Seaboy and Gray Center. We'll also have uh, Professor Gary Lawson, who's Associate Dean for Intellectual Life, and the Philip C. S. Beck Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law. And it has uh, Mr. Adam White, who is co-director of the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State, um, and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Our moderator is the Honorable Stephen Menashe, who is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Without further ado, Judge Menashe. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here for this panel on the Roberts Court and the Administrative State, or the Roberts Court and Administrative Law. Um, the Roberts Court's uh, cases have called many precedents into question, including in the area of presidential appointment and removal, as well as with respect to judicial deference to administrative agencies. And I'm looking forward to what the panelists have to say about the Roberts Court and Administrative Law, which is increasingly important. Uh, As you all know, the administrative state has a great deal of authority in the life of most Americans, and administrative law puts some safeguards over the exercise of that authority and also ensures uh, that Congress's uh, directions for the need for regulation are executed. Uh, While the court has expressed some willingness to overturn major decisions, uh, including Chevron and Auer, it's often... Uh, found more incremental ways to achieve some objectives. And uh, to enlighten us on those kinds of moves, we have a distinguished panel today uh, who has already been introduced. So we'll start with uh, Gary Lawson. 
Hi, thanks. Thanks so much. Um, I'm actually going to violate flagrantly norms of consistency, predictability, textualism, and anything else that one might associate with the concept of the rule of law because I'm not actually going to be talking about the Roberts Court. Now, I'm happy, I, I'm happy to talk about the Roberts Court in the comments and questions afterward. Uh, short version. I don't like it very much. Uh, at least not in administrative law, but, but that's not really uh, what I'm going to be talking about. Instead, I'm, I'm sort of the transition from the first panel to the second panel. And, and that is because uh, when I got the invitation to this event, I was in the process of co-writing a manuscript on the uh, second of the Chenery cases from 1947, Chenery II. And for 35 years, if someone had asked me, what's the one case in the administrative law canon that is the anti-rule of law case, that is the anti-matter version of the rule of law, immediately I would shoot out Chenery 2. So I figured, why not talk about Chenery 2? It's also, this manuscript is a whole lot shorter than the one I have right now on the Roberts Court, which is about 100 pages long. Um, all right, so what's... What's the problem uh, with the Chenery 2 case from a rule of law perspective? Well, some of it turns out to be, I think, constitutional, but I'm going to put most of that aside for the moment uh, because most of it is, is jurisprudential. Uh, what do I mean by that? What's, what's going on in the Chenery 2 case? Well, this is a decision, you don't know, from 1947. Uh, Congress passed a statute that doesn't exist anymore, the Public Utility Holding Company Act, or PUCA, as, uh, that's what it is, Spuka. Uh, and it ordered uh, these uh, public utility holding companies, which had come up with very complex corporate structures, a company this owns this, owns this, owns this, owns this. Uh, they're ordered to, to reorganize, and they have to turn in plans to uh, the Securities Exchange Commission. And the commission, according to the statute, by rule or order, this is pre-APA, uh, but the statute specifically authorizes the agency to proceed by rule or order uh, to approve these plans, provided that they are, quote, fair and equitable. Well, uh, one of these companies uh, uh, reorganizes, and the, the principal parties in that company want to make sure that they have a solid stake in the new company once it's reorganized. It becomes very clear that the only People who are going to share in the new reorganized company are preferred stockholders, so they go out onto the open market and they buy a bunch of preferred stock. Uh, no dirty dealing, no inside information. These are all public, uh, very open transactions. Nobody questions of that. But the SEC finally approves a reorganization plan that allows all preferred stockholders to get an interest in the new reorganized company, uh, except the Chenneries. Uh, all, all the stock except the ones uh, that they had bought uh, during the reorganization. And in the first of the Chenery cases, uh, the Supreme Court rules against the agency. Uh, the agency claims that, well, we're just following established judicial precedents. The Supreme Court reads the established judicial precedents and says, no, you're not. I've read those judicial precedents. No, they weren't. Uh, pretty easy call. Uh, go back and, you know, you want to do the same thing, you have to, have to have some law. You have to have some basis of law for saying these people don't get to turn their shares in uh, for stock in the new company. So the agency comes back with law. Uh, what is the law that they come back with? Well, they make it up. Uh, they simply invent. And pretty open about this. There's no statute. 
no common law tradition, no regulation, no settled customer, nothing that you'd be able to identify as law except the agency's decision in this one particular adjudication. And they, they announce it, and they apply it to conduct, uh, which when the Chenneries did the conduct, there was no no legal norm of any recognizable kind that said, this is, you can't do this. Uh, they apply it right, right to the making up a new, new, call, a new principle of law and adjudication. They apply it retroactively. And then over their staff's objections, uh, refuse to apply it uh, to other seemingly similarly situated uh, corporate managers and other reorganizations. All right, so that's always uh, steamed me a bit. Uh, what, why, why is that bad? What is it about that that creates a rule of law problem distinctively? Partly, I think, it's about what Tom Merrill was talking about earlier, the predictability part. But I think that's only part of the story. That's the rule part of the rule of law story. The other part is the law part of the rule of law story. What exactly is the rule of law, or more specifically, what is the law that we are interested in the rule of? And if you read Tom's fascinating article, and you absolutely should, uh, something that is implicit throughout it, uh, not, not surprisingly, is that the conception of what counts as law is entirely positivist. Law is that which emerges from certain institutional forms. Is that really the rule of law? Well, to some extent, the answer has to be yes, because that constitution that I was putting aside to some extent tells us that that's the answer. Article 1, Section 7 defines very specifically what it is that counts as a law. It is certain things that pass through certain forms. They are approved by both houses of Congress, presented to the president, signed, or if vetoed, reenacted by both houses of Congress, by supermajorities. That is, the Constitution says, a law. Right? No question that, that to some extent, uh, what counts as a law is determined entirely by formal conditions. That's fine. Uh, but to say that the rule of law means the rule, the regularity, the predictability of those things that emerge from those formal conditions presupposes that that is the only thing that's going to count as law. And we actually know that that's not true. How do we know that's not true? Because there are things that pass through those formal Article 7, Article 1, Section 7 processes uh, that turn out uh, not to have any actual legal effect. Why? Because they are inconsistent with and therefore trumped by some other thing that also counts as law, even though it's not specifically mentioned in Article 1, Section 7, that turns out to be hierarchically superior to the stuff that comes out from that. Now, whether that set of things that is potentially in conflict with and hierarchically superior to the positivist law is just positivist constitutional norms, whether it includes norms of international law, whether it includes norms of natural law. Those are all interesting questions. I don't need to get into them here. Point is only that if we're talking about something violating the rule of law, we have to be very clear about all of the different things that we're willing to think about as potential sources of law. Uh, and what happened to the Chenneries? Does that violate any specific statute that Congress enacted under Article 1, Section 7? Well, that's 
necessarily Congress did not have an SEC don't make up law during adjudication statute. If, if anything, the the text of the statute seemed to authorize the agency to do through adjudication exactly what it would do through orders. Might there nonetheless be other norms that trump that? Well, it's not a 100-page manuscript, but it's a 60-page manuscript if you want the answer. Uh, it's not on SSRN yet, uh, but, it, but it will be soon. Uh, so anyway, that's sort of point number one. We, we, we want to be very clear about what we count as, as, as law. Point number two is I'm going to agree with something that Professor Rosenblum said on the first panel, and that is the disputes about the rule of law, however defined in the administrative state, are really about political economy. And he's clearly, unambiguously right about that. Uh, and 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 I think it makes sense to, to take things on those terms. Uh, let me start with my favorite slash least favorite uh, uh, administrative law figure, and that is uh, James Landis, uh, the former dean of the Harvard Law School, uh, uh, architect of the Securities and Exchange Securities Act and Securities and Exchange Act, an early commissioner of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the author of the most influential book on American administrative law ever written, The Administrative Process. Uh, if any of them is familiar with it, it's a, it's a full-bore attack on the notion of separation of powers as a constraint on the administrative state. It is indirectly an attack on the rule of law as a constraint on the administrative state. Why do I say that? Well, what's, what's Landis's objection to old-style 1788 separation of powers? Well, he says, no business operates that way. No, no organization that's actually trying to get things done divides itself into three separate institutions with these well-defined functions and each checking and countering each other. So that you know, if General Motors tried to operate that way, uh, it would never uh, have gone past horses and buggies. Well, suppose we find some set of the considerations that uh, Tom uh, points out as defining the rule of law. It could either be the thin conception, a thick conception, a mushy conception, whatever it is. Whatever set you come up with, if you then try to match those against what New Deal-style administrative agencies were by Landis thought supposed to do, and you say, well, wait a minute, they, they've got to be more predictable than that, they've got to be more consistent than that, they've got to be more prospective than that, they have to, well, will Landis' answer be... Show me a business that runs itself that way. Show me a business that operates on that model, and we'll talk. What's at stake here, and, and any political economy is the is is not even the a deep enough term. It's a it's a theory of government given the nature of people. Uh, let me just throw two competing visions out there that I think define what most debates about the administrative state, whether couched in constitutional terms, jurisprudential terms, doctrinal terms, normative terms, I think they're really all about. Vision number one is what I will call the 1788 vision, because it's perfectly obvious to anyone who looks at the Constitution of the United States that this vision infuses it, and that is the people-basically-suck vision, uh, not uniformly so. If people were always awful, the species would have died out a long time ago. But if you look at the course of human history, 
there are a lot of really bad people out there doing bad things. Enough bad people doing bad things. So that if you're designing an institution that's going to give people lots of power, you might want to think about, okay, what are the bad things that these people might do? And you're going to construct mechanisms that don't completely prevent them from doing anything, but I don't want them to do too much. So the, the key worry from that vision in institutional design is making sure that bad people don't have too many opportunities to do bad things. Fast forward to the second part of the 19th century, what I will call this large P progressive vision. Uh, you have a very different sense of what institutional design is all about. They're the, the problem they see is not that you might not put enough checks in the way of bad people. The problem is you might put too many roadblocks in the way of good people understanding their conception of good people as being those who have the training, expertise, social class, whatever, to identify and solve human problems the same way that engineers can build bridges, uh, social engineers can solve human problems. And if that's what you see as the central problem of human affairs, um, all of this rule of law stuff, all of this separation of power stuff, that's that's just... I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't make chemists and engineers go through all of that. Why would you make the wise people with PhDs from Columbia who are now going to be running human affairs go through all of that? Uh, and, and I think almost everything that happens in administrative law uh, over the last century and a half is explicable in terms of the the conflict. To, to borrow a phrase from a very wise man, a conflict of visions. Uh, Thomas Sowell uh, put it. Uh, what does any of that have to do with the Roberts Court? Uh, absolutely nothing. That's why I started this by saying I'm violating all of the norms. Uh, but th that's, if I'm thinking about a, a, a conference talking about the rule of law in the administrative state, I, I just don't think it can be done in the abstract. I think it has to be tied to theories about how, how you think people are likely to behave, how you think people are likely to behave when placed in certain institutional settings, do do people change fundamentally when they're placed in an administrative agency? They're going to behave differently then than they're going to behave in their private lives or than they would behave if they were uh, working for uh, 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 DuPont Company. I mean, if you think that all of a sudden, yeah, that, that fundamentally changes their whole their whole outlook on life, their whole nature. They're, they're, they're no longer like the sorts of people. Uh, that uh, that you would uh, you know, read about historically, you're going to have a a very different view of of, of how things uh, operate. Uh, so that's that's my spiel. Uh, if people want to talk about the Roberts Court, happy to entertain questions and explain why I think they're terrible. Uh, and people want to talk more about the, the mechanics or details of the Chenery Two Doctrine, happy to do that. But th this this was this was really the thing that flashed through my mind when when Adam extended the invitation. All right, so off topic, but hopefully hopefully uh, 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 provocative. Thanks very much, Gary. <laughs> Adam. All right, I will talk about the Roberts Court because, I mean, I picked the topic, so it would be a little gauche <laughs> if I didn't talk about it. But I, I do want to say, Gary, I was practice, still practicing energy law in 05 when they repealed the Public Utility Holding Company Act, and the saddest lawyer I knew 
was the one who specialized in that law and had dedicated her entire career to that statute only to see it repealed. Um, before, before I give my own quick thoughts on the Roberts Court, I just want to flag the two other papers in the symposium that focus really specifically on the Roberts Court. One's by Lisa Heinzeling of Georgetown. She, she was sorry not to be able to be here today. Her paper's really great. It's called The Major Answers Doctrine, where she, she says, uh, the Supreme Court's newly articulated major questions doctrine is not actually about major questions. It's about major answers. It's not only misnamed, but also misconceived. Uh, then she concludes, uh, the, the doctrine is ideologically driven and analytically careless in prizing ideology over analysis. Uh, the court has at least done one thing well. It has shown us who is boss. So it's, that's a good sense of, of the article, and I really encourage you to read it when it comes out. That article is paired with one from Professor Michael McConnell of Stanford's Law School. Uh, he writes that his essay is titled Chevron, Then and Now. And he argues that, that Chevron, when it was originally decided, stood for the modest proposition that courts can't overturn the policy decisions of agencies without a solid basis in the relevant statutes. But then he concludes, by the early 2020s, Chevron looked rather different. Instead of protecting agency policy discretion within the bounds of statutory missions, the doctrine was used in many cases to justify expanding the agency's mission. And so he comes out very much in favor of, of, um, of, of the more recent developments putting limits on uh, Chevron deference. I want to say, by the way, Gary's, the, the paper you mentioned about the Roberts Court, it's not part of the symposium, but I've seen it, and it's very, very interesting. So I'm looking forward to when it sees the, the final light of day. Um, about the Roberts Court, just really briefly, by this point, the debates in and around the Roberts Court <laughs> on Chevron deference and on non-delegation, they're, needless to say, very, very well known. Um, and in some ways, I think they've overshadowed some of the other interesting, well, and also in addition to those, the debates over agency structure, the appointments clause, the removal issue, those really have captured uh, the attention of legal scholars and other judges. And in some ways, they've overshadowed what I think is actually, so far, the more significant development in actual majority decisions in the Supreme Court around the administrative state. You've seen a thread of decisions now going back several years where the court has really tried to slow the pace of change in, in agencies. Uh, it's cases like the, the litigation around DACA, the immigration policy, where the Roberts Court pushed back against the Trump administration. Uh, similarly, the census case, where the Roberts Court pushed back against the Trump administration, said that their justifications for adding the citizenship question to the census uh, were, were, were um, what, was what was the word? Pretextual, Pretextual thank you. Um, uh, but you look back a little bit further. One of the most significant Chevron cases in recent years, King v. Burwell, where the Roberts Court upheld the Obama administration's interpretation of the Affordable Care Act. I think it was a strained, a strained reading of the statute, to say the least. But before the court interpreted the statute, the court, uh, in the, the opinion written by the Chief Justice, said, first things first, we're not going to apply Chevron deference here. This is too major a question uh, to apply the Chevron framework. And Roberts, that part of the opinion is very short, but Roberts makes clear an oral argument. Uh, he made clear an oral argument why he was wary of Chevron deference in that context. He said, Going forward, you would have flip-flops from one administration to the next in perpetuity. Just complete instability and uncertainty over the central feature of a very significant statute, the Affordable Care Act. As it happens, Roberts has been wary of agency flip-flops for a long time. If you look at the oral argument transcripts, he loves to needle the government lawyers 
over agency changes of mind. He loves to sort of watch them explain why the agency changed its position because wisdom came late. They learned some new things about the world or about the statute. And Robert says, no, there was a presidential election. That's why you changed your policy. And I think that's one of the most important but under underappreciated themes of the Roberts Court administration is the way in which Chief Justice Roberts has cobbled together a variety of majorities to implement new doctrines to change the pace of change in administration. The, the point that, that, that Professor Merrill was emphasizing in, on the first panel, uh, the dangers of regulatory uncertainty, the costs of regulatory uncertainty in a world where every new administration uh, every presidential election feels kind of like regime change, and every new administration approaches the law like an etch-a-sketch, which to explain for the younger students here is you draw on it, then you <laughs> shake it, and it disappears. Um, and it, Chief Justice Roberts seems to be very wary of that kind of rule of law in government. He's not the only one who was... Uh, and by the way, I, I would see the major questions doctrine very much of a piece with this. I think the major questions doctrine for a number of the justices is about delegation, I think maybe in some ways the better way to read it, especially through Chief Justice Roberts, is about stability, reliance interests, unfair surprise, right? the, the unpredictability of law. Roberts and, and other judges have seen it this way. They're not the only ones who've seen it this way. When you go back and read the founding debates, this was the central worry of Alexander Hamilton. In Federalist 68 through 76, where he's arguing for long-term limits or for, for a four-year term, and then the possibility of re-election. Over and over again, he's justifying this in terms of the stability of law. He worried about what he called ruinous mutability in administration. Uh, and, and he said, actually, if anything, mutability in administration will undermine people's faith in government, right? In some way, the way that Madison argued about stability in constitutions, building reverence, Hamilton makes the same argument about administration and laws, basically. Not in terms of reverence. He liked administration, but maybe not that much. But he, he worried about the people losing faith in government because the laws would be so mutable from one administration to the next. A, a lot of Professor Rosenblum's um, comments on the first panel, they reminded me of a quip that Hamilton makes in Federal 68. He quotes um, Alexander Pope, not by name, but he quotes him. and He, he refers to the Pope's political heresy. Um, on, Pope wrote, on forms of government let fools contest. That which is best administered is best. Hamilton says, well, that's a heresy, but there's a little bit of truth in it. He says, the true test of good government is its tendency and aptitude to produce good administration. And what Hamilton meant when you read across his writings is, is administration that is reasonably steady, but also energetic. And constantly trying to strike that balance between stability and energy was the, was the central argument that Hamilton makes and I wouldn't say that the Roberts Court in these themes I just highlighted, they're certainly not explicitly inspired by that, or I think even implicitly inspired by it. I think, though, that those principles in our constitutional government have a kind of gravitational pull on what uh, the Roberts Court is doing, if only because the Roberts Court is reacting to the kinds of costs of regulatory instability that Hamilton and the other founders were so worried about. Um, I went on too long, but I'll just say in, in closing a couple of things. Um, to the extent that the Roberts Court seems to be gravitating towards those principles, there's a couple others I'd throw into the mix. Uh, one is that I, don't think, I think we've come to forget in the modern era how much administration really is an effort at liquidation in the Madisonian sense, of trying to wring some kind of meaning and stability out of inherently uh, unavoidably vague laws, 
right, that administration is the final step in trying to wring some certainty out of vagueness, um, and that judicial review is the, and, and administration are both a very delicate and, and nuanced effort to try to impose some certainty in unavoidably vague laws. I think also Hamiltonian administration is a lot about responsibility and what's in the mind and the heart and the character of the administration. Uh, and I w- again, I wouldn't say the Roberts Court has been focusing on that, but there's like a flavor of that, right? And the things like pretextual analysis, where they really are worried about not just the, the nominal legal arguments an agency is making, but they're, they're putting some weight on the mindset with which the agencies are approaching administration, right? It's seeing administration as an effort and responsibility more, even more so than a, an a exercise in willfulness. Um, I guess the last thing I just say is that the irony in all of this is that the more that the courts impose rules, especially procedural rules and standards on the agencies, um, that will that will improve stability, I suppose, but it will sap energy from administration. Justice Kavanaugh, then Judge Kavanaugh, when he's on the D.C. Circuit, he worried about this in an opinion called American Radio Relay League, where he said, you know, hard look review is good in many ways, but starts to really make the administration look less like executive power and look more like more like legislative power. And so um, I'm sure 20 years from now, to the extent the Roberts Court course corrects in direction of stability, there'll be another course correction in the direction of, of energy. I went on way too long, but I'll leave it at that. Thanks very much, uh, Adam. <laughs> Sally. <clears throat> well, thank you very much uh, for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I-, I have to say I have always admired um, uh, JLL and uh, FedSoc and the Gray Center because they have uh, welcomed uh, different views. Uh, they have tolerated uh, different uh, philosophies and approaches. And as Adam knows, and, and he and I go back a long way, um, I typically play the skunk at the picnic, <clears throat> not a welcome visitor. If Lisa Heiserling were here, she, I would cede that role to her immediately because she is far too uh, to the left of me. So you're no skunk in this ain't no picnic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found when I was thinking about what I wanted to say and what I could say, that I was approaching the subject of the Roberts Court and the administrative state sort of more in sorrow than in anger. Uh, Or I had an idea about how conservatives uh, must have watched the growth of the administrative state post-New Deal, uh, Warren Court, uh, Burger Court, and, and the law as they knew it was changing, and they did not think it was going in the right direction. That's how I feel. Same way. Uh, I would distinguish the two situations in that during the former, the Congress and the court were expanding rights and privileges and access to the courts, and most importantly for present purposes, enabling, facilitating the government's ability to solve problems. It was something that Gary mentioned that I think is, is critically important in an increasingly uh, complicated and potentially threatening world. And tackling one problem 
after another, uh, food safety after Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, auto safety after Ralph Nader's Unsafe at Any Speed, clean water after Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And, you know, books are important, like the Federalist Papers. Yeah, books are good. That was a laugh line. You're supposed to be with me on this one. (laughs) There was also a number of acts, uh, the Endangered Species Act, the OSHA Act, the Clean Air Act, and on and on and on, with Congress delegating authority to the agencies to evaluate risks, use science and technology, use economics, whatever, to try to improve the quality of our lives resolve problems that had stumped the market and needed the direct, sustained attention of people who were experts in the field. Was every step taken during that period the right one? Hell no. Of course not. Did everyone like the proposed solutions? Absolutely not. There were examples of overly aggressive rules Uh, that produced unintended and unfortunate consequences. So there were course corrections along the way, and we saw them with Reagan-Bush, we saw some more with George W. Bush, but there was a general agreement that permeated the Washington that I moved to in the 60s, and have still lived there, actually, that the issues confronting the country were serious, and we needed people to deal with them. We needed scientists, engineers, technicians, economists, and dare I say, lawyers. We generally agreed, uh, not always, but usually, that there were problems. And there were problems worth confronting. And while we may have disagreed on how to solve those problems, there was an effort to work together and see what could be done. And now I sense that, regrettably, ideology, if I can call it that, has taken over practicality and constructive engagement, and that we, or more pointedly, the majority on the Supreme Court today, seems to forget that we're living in 2023, not 1933 or even 1970. I would say nine. You kept saying 1978. It's 1788. I was saying 89. Okay, we're off by a year, but otherwise I think we're in sync. You know, I readily concede that our founding fathers had a very constricted view of what the executive branch could do in setting policy. But while they were giants, we should remember that they were living on a loose sliver of land, holding on with their fingertips on the Atlantic coast. It was mostly an agrarian society, and the leaders were all white, all property owners, and all free males. We are a different country today. And you can blink reality, or you can embrace it. We are the most powerful and dominant nation in the world. We retain our agrarian roots, but we've led and prospered through the industrial age, the growth of the service economy, and an information economy. And we have welcomed immigrants from around the world and enfranchised them, including women, all to the lasting benefit of this country. And you may have a different view and want to go back to 1789. I, for one, 
am a little happier here today. The issues we face are serious and they're difficult. And this is not the time, I think, to disregard or abandon the expertise and the experience that has been built up over the years and that has helped us bring us to the place we are today. But that is precisely what the Roberts Corps is doing through a narrow and, I think, distorted view of their allegiance to what they term the rule of law. And I do want to just comment something that Adam said, and maybe I should wait until I'm sort of finished and we have a free-for-all. But Adams was talking about the Roberts Court. And I'm mentioning the Roberts Court. And the title here is the Roberts Roberts is not with the court all the time. You mentioned, among other things, um, the, um, the citizenship case. You mentioned King versus Burwell. He was alone. He didn't have his cohort of, um, dare I say, textualist, uh, dare I say, uh, very conservative. Uh, in any event, take the major questions doctrine. Uh, actually, it's a hell of a lot better than the non-delegation doctrine because that's constitutional, and they go there, and we're in deep shit, uh, trouble. Uh, <clears throat> Whereas this is something which Congress, were it a functioning branch of the government, could actually try to address. But the major questions doctrine came from an opinion by Justice O'Connor, which was an extraordinary confluence of events, sort of a once-in-a-lifetime, a little bit like Bush v. Gore. But unlike Bush v. Gore, it not only lives, but it has sprouted like kudzu or bamboo in anyone's garden. Someday you'll all have homes, you'll have gardens in the backyard. You don't want kudzu, believe me. It just spreads like wildfire. It really does. Now, the major question doctrine um, is being invoked both by lower courts and, most importantly, by the Supreme Court with great and increasing frequency. And what is that doctrine? Simply that that which strikes at least five justices as a variation, an extension, or a metamorphosis of what the agency has previously done and that had been blessed by earlier courts is now declared beyond the agency's authority unless Congress has explicitly spelled out that the agency has that specific authority. This is not dictated by precedent if you want stability or predictability, this is a doctrine that has been fashioned by a group, actually a strong minority, but a minority of jurists and academicians. It has no clear and compelling roots in 1789 or 1788. Uh, it is the rule, still evolving, adopted by a majority of the current justices. It is not a manifestation of the rule of law. It's the rule of five people in black robes, sometimes six. And how do we think this doctrine will play out in practice? Well, Congress, the most powerful and seemingly effective branch in 1789, cannot today even debate, let alone decide, the pressing issues of the day. Congress is deeply divided, reflecting a deeply divided country, and unfortunately also drowning in a political party struggle seen as a zero-sum game. 
my party wins, your party loses. If I can make your party lose, my party wins. And the most important thing is to keep the other guys from winning the next election, where we will again do nothing but fight with one another. Congress can't tie its shoes. It really has had a very difficult time doing just about anything. It cannot even pass a budget year after year. And while it can spend money and do some things via reconciliation, it cannot address policy. Policy has not been addressed for the longest time by this particular Congress. And this is the institution that the Supreme Court says is the only institution to make laws, or it must anticipate technological, scientific, or engineering breakthroughs or calamities and give its blessing in advance to specific solutions that it knows nothing about, cannot foresee. And that's a lot to ask from an agency that's barely functional. Now, I'm clearly over of time, but I want to just address, if I may, thank you, very courteous. <laughs> the court, in my view, is out of step and undercutting the rule of law, not only in this area, but in others affecting the scope, competence, and contributions of the administrative state. You mentioned appointments and removal of agency officials. The President of the United States, the most powerful man on the planet, will somehow be irreparably compromised if he cannot fire an administrative law judge. Or apparently, anyone with, and I'm quoting from Thomas here, a modicum of authority. His concurring opinion in Lucia defines an officer as anyone who performs a continuous public duty even if they performed only ministerial Statutory duties including record keepers, clerks, and tide waiters. We can talk afterwards about what's a tide waiter. They're very interesting subject. The Chief Justice created out of whole cloth this bright line test of dual four removal. Where the did that come from? <laughs> Seriously. In, 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 okay, so um, that was a position, that was a, a, a creation by the Congress. You want to have Congress decide things? They decided it. But that didn't sort of matter too much. Consider also the court's recent steps to challenging the ability of regulatory beneficiaries, not regulated entities, but regulatory beneficiaries, those who, who, who are blessed by the, benef uh, by the regulation, to even access the court. There was a decision last year which was polling. And it said Justice Thomas through the roof, and rightly so. The court's threat to curtail or cease deferring to an agency's interpretation of the law, and we'll talk about Chevron, when the statutory term is admittedly by the judges. They admit it's ambiguous. And they're only looking at a clause or maybe a sentence or maybe a section, not the whole act. And they're the ones who are going to determine what they mean. That's just for starters. Now, I'm I'm struck by the peevishness by which some of the justices even say, administrative state. I mean, like it's some offensive, foul-smelling animal. Their reaction is to dis or denigrate the administrative state. 
It isn't, after all, even mentioned in the Constitution, uh, although there are references to officers and departments. But I may be unfair, and I'm obviously here to express a view that will at least attract your attention and maybe get you thinking. But I am very concerned. When I grew up as a little lawyer back in the 60s and 70s, I continually heard conservatives express dismay about the lack of judicial restraint by the Warren and the Burger Court. And they grilled people who were nominated for positions as judges. Are you for judicial restraint? I don't think what's happening is restraint. I think it's a lack of restraint. And I fear that their charge to dismantle the administrative state will be most unfortunate for the law, the rule of law, for me, and for you. Thanks very much. So now we'll have some discussion, and if you have questions, please line up at the microphone. Um, I have some questions for discussion, but I thought actually since I saw everybody furiously taking notes, maybe I should just ask if there are other panelists who want to respond to what one of their co-panelists said. I like read a whole sheet worth, so I don't want to take too, 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 too much time. Let me let me throw one at, at Adam. Uh, you talked about um, unavoidably vague laws. What about avoidably vague laws? Uh, where does where does interpretation of a law end and creation of a law begin? <laughs> there there has to be something about that. I wrote down seven bullet points uh, from uh, from uh, from from Sally Katzen. Uh, I, I just want to say I, she doesn't know this, but I've known her name for four decades. Not that we've met, but I'm, I'm not that old. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, we both are because in in nineteen it was either eighty five or eighty six because I was clerking on the D.C. Circuit. And this is why the name has stuck in my head for that long. Uh, was the single best oral argument I have ever seen any <laughs> lawyer do. Uh, and I remembered the name Sally Katz. I don't remember the case, but I remember the name Sally Katz. And I was like, oh my God, that was good. Um, <laughs> so, uh, here's, here's the bullet point version. Uh, point number one, uh, in terms of problem solving ability in a complex world, I've already quoted one author of one book. Let me quote another. Simple rules for a complex world. Complexity does not necessarily call for more rather than less. Uh, uh, what? Well, number two, expertise. Uh, this has uh, been an obsession of mine for the last few years. I haven't written much on it, but that's all coming later. Um, one of the central questions of the next few decades is going to be to try to define uh, what expertise is, what it is that expertise, however defined, can and cannot do, uh, that turns out to be an extremely complicated question when you start getting into wh what is it, what problems are amenable to what kinds of expertise, how would you know whether or not you've got the right experts if you are not yourself an expert, uh, how do you know what the experts are going to do? Are they going to exercise expertise or something else? And how are the non-experts going to tell? And number four, even if you have a problem that's amenable in theory to expertise, where on the sort of curve of knowledge are you? Because most knowledge curves are not always upward sloping. They tend to go to two, 
it's entirely possible that your expert is going to send you here rather than here, and neither you nor the expert will know. Point is, that's that highlights one of the central questions. We probably should have a panel on that. Um, all right. Well, I've I've got five more, but I'll save those. Uh, those those were the first okay, two. You want to maybe take those in order? I don't know if you have a response about avoidably. I can wait. Okay. I'll respond to it, but okay. Um, three. Uh, but yeah, in the 18th century, this was a very small sliver of land. Um, one of the big problems with the country is that it may be too big. Um, there is actually a literature on the optimal size of countries. And it is not at all obvious that the United States did not long ago exceed any plausible understanding. Uh, there were folks like Montesquieu uh, who would have thought that, and there were people at the framing who thought that. It was assumed that by the time the country got to the Mississippi River, it would dissolve. Um, it hasn't, or or has it? Uh, no, seriously, it's, it's, these are these are these are actually very very serious questions. Uh, 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 major questions doctrine. I, I am not a fan of the major questions doctrine. I never have been. Uh, I, I actually, in my, my ad law case book, uh, resisted even acknowledging a major questions doctrine until I couldn't. Uh, so I'm actually uh, a witner on that. It's actually much older than Brown and Williamson. It goes back at least to the 1940s uh, when courts were deciding whether or not, is this too important for us to leave to an agency? It's it's, it never made a whole lot of sense to then. It didn't make a lot of sense to me now. And that is because, number five, I am not a fan of substantive canons of interpretation. I, they're, they're, they're not ways of ascertaining the communicative meaning of texts. They're ways of avoiding uh, uh, ascertaining the communicative meaning. They're a way of shaping the meaning. I don't think courts should be shaping the meaning of texts. I'm entirely with, uh, with, uh, with Sally Katzen on that. Now, what I would do instead is say, okay, this is what the text means. It's obviously an unconstitutional delegation and therefore not law, but but I wouldn't do it through the major questions doctrine through the back door. Um, Congress is dysfunctional. Well, you know, yes and no. It depends upon what it is that you think Congress's function is. If you think Congress's function is to micromanage everything that everybody in the country does, yeah, it's not actually doing a very good job of that. Some of us are grateful uh, for that. Uh, but no, it's a, it's a fact. Um uh, but I, I, I do, I, I do want to thank uh, uh, Sally, and I mean this profoundly, for articulating precisely the vision that accounts for most of the institutions uh, that are around us. If, if you want to understand the world we have, you should not be listening to me. You probably shouldn't even be listening to Adam. You should be listening to Sally Katzen because no, this, this is true. This is just empirically true. This is. If, if understanding is your goal, that's that's where you're, you're not going to get it from the crazies uh, like us. And then finally, uh, why 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 would the administrative well not, not fine, why would the administrative state be a bad thing? Well, th this actually goes back to something I would have asked Professor Rosenblum on the first uh, uh, panel uh, if I had asked a question. And that is uh, distinguish between these two things. One is administration, and the other is the administrative state. They are not the same thing. Um, of course there's going to be administration. There's why there's a whole article of the Constitution about it. Article 2 is about administration. We're not really here worrying about administration. We're here worrying about the administrative state. That is a circumstance in which administration doesn't just hand out military pensions, doesn't even just figure out how tax collection districts are going to work, but essentially micromanages uh, every aspect of people's lives. It's This is where the, the political economy thing comes in. It's 
the reason why some of us are unhappy is because, not because there are administrators, but because there are administrators doing too many of the wrong kinds of things. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not, it's a mistake to equate that with the concept of administration as such. And then finally, and this may this be another panel also, um, uh, Sally Katzen has lived through a fundamental change in constitutional theory. It is a change from uh, what she is correct in the 1960s and 1970s was a mantra of judicial restraint. Um, that is that is actually not the the dominant theory among those who fancy themselves constitutional originalists and hasn't been for several decades. Uh, I will take some measure of either responsibility or blame for, for theorizing it. But, uh, yeah, the people who grew up in the shadow of the Warren court, the Robert Borks and the Antonin Scalia's, yeah, they were, they were focused on, you know, courts are doing too much and they latched onto originalism, not as a way of interpreting texts, but as a way of keeping judges under control. There was a bunch of snot nosed kids in their twenties, uh, in the 1980s, frankly, who started asking some different questions. We asked, how do you interpret a text? And, okay, what conception of judicial role comes out of reading the text and trying to figure out what those texts say? And by sort of concluded, you know, that judicial restraint stuff, pretty tough to get that uh, out of interpretation of the text. So you're absolutely right. You're observing a real phenomenon. Uh, the old, the old notion of judges shouldn't do very much has basically been replaced, at least in the minds of many, with judges should do what the texts tell the judges to do. And that may be, in some contexts, not very much. And in some contexts, it may be a whole lot. That's an empirical question uh, that has to be worked out. But absolutely correct is an empirical observation. Uh, the old, the old, the old, there's been a changing of the guard and, 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 and it's, it's openly theorized in a very different way. Anyway, that's a lot. That's too much. I thought it was a terrific, uh, uh, uh presentation and talk and, and thank you for doing right, well, it and for listening to me. Okay. Let's get reactions to that. Why don't we go in order? Why Adam first? Sally. I'll just say, first of all, Gary, I don't think the country is too big for constitutional government. I think the country is too fast for constitutional government, too fast in the pace with which we decide policy, change policy, communicate, and make up our minds. And the great challenge for a republic is to slow things down a little bit. Um, and in terms of the question of, of how do we wring out certainty out of vague laws as I see it, I think that's the gap. It's the journey from Federalist 37 to Federalist 78. Federalist 37, where, where Madison says, all laws, no matter how much time you spend thinking about them, how carefully you write them, there's always going to be a little bit of vagueness. He says they're going to be more or less vague, some more, some less. And then you wring that out through the process of adjudication, discussions and adjudications. It's the process of administration. And then it ends with Federal 78, where Matt Hamilton, he strikes a lot of tones of judicial restraint. I think they're often overlooked in Federal 78. But at some point, the law has to be given a final meeting, meeting so that we can move on with our lives and, if, if need be, change the law in Congress. So that task of interpretation, the real fights over Chevron deference, whatever the next version of Chevron deference is going to be, it's going to be somewhere between Federalist 37 and Federalist 78. Another way of putting it is it's going to be somewhere between Scalia and Thomas, where Scalia's big argument for Chevron deference was you needed space for administration, for policy judgment. Thomas says, no, you need finality. You need the law to have meaning. And the question is, what framework for deference is going to allow some play in the joints in the beginning with an eye to Federalist 37, but it's actually going to settle meaning at the end through, with Thomas and Federal 78. 
And I have comments on Sally's thing, too, but I'm going to let you jump. Well, I was just about to say I agree with Adam, and we ought to hear some questions from the judge or from the audience, but if you got comments on mine, Adam. <laughs> I'll just say... My, I'm ready. My first, comment, my, my first comment, Sally, is I know you were hurt when Gary said he's, he's known the name Sally Katzen for four decades, but for what it's worth, I've only known the name Sally Katzen for two decades. So, so I'm getting younger. Yeah, <laughs> something As like the that. Channel goes on. This you know, your good. your point, of, your criticism of Congress reminded me of the line presidents love to say: uh, "If Congress won't act, I will." And that's true, but also the opposite is true. Because presidents will act, Congress won't. Because presidents oversee agencies that have been delegated such broad powers, we now are in a position where all the initial political energy flows to the administration to make the new laws. Judges then are called to decide cases that are much as much about prudential judgments, all these nationwide injunction things and the, and the shadow docket. They're making the kind of, let me put it this way, administrations now act like legislatures. Now because of broad delegations, the next step is judges almost acting like administrations, making all these prudential judgments about balances of arms and, and equities and so on. And then at the end of the, that train is Congress doing the only job they know how to do anymore, which is to basically sit as a court of public opinion and sit and cast judgment on everything that's happened. And I think the root problem of all this is delegation, which has caused each of the three branches to do a job that wasn't theirs to do, which they're not really well built to do. And the only way we're going to get out of this cul-de-sac is if the courts nudge Congress and nudge the political energy back to Congress. And that's what I see the major questions doctrine as. And I like it a lot more than non-delegation because it's a softer touch. I have to say I disagree uh, that, uh, with with your evaluation of Congress. Um, I think Congress derives its uh, inability to function uh, not because the administration has sucked up all the oxygen in the room uh, and the expertise. I, I think it's because the way we have handled the election process and the the um, deep divisions in this country whereby I, I can't believe that some people will run for office and say, I will not compromise. They don't even know what the issue is. Yes, he is president of the United States. I'm talking about somebody running for office, Richard. And I think there's a big difference. Well, I mean, I happen to disagree with you when you start holding hostage funds to keep the country solvent. We could get into the debt, uh, uh, the debt limit uh, anytime you'd like, uh, having done a lot of work in that area. It, the full faith and credit of the United States is going to be held hostage to Marjorie Taylor Greene or whatever her name is. I mean, um, I, I have to say that when you are running for office to say, I am going to take an oath to uphold the Constitution, which is the oath you take when you become a House member or a senator or the president, and to have said in before that, and I will not compromise. I will not. On any issue. I mean, it seems to me that makes it very difficult to come together in a country. And I think it's most unfortunate. But, um, 
Okay. We're, we're at time, but we started late. Is it okay if we take a few minutes to ask a couple of questions? Is it? All right. So I was struck by when I was reading the papers for this panel that Mike McConnell's paper said, you know, the Chevron decision, if you go back and read it, was quite reasonable at the time. It, it just wanted to tell the courts get out of interfering with the policy discretion of agencies, but it's evolved into this doctrine of interpretive authority that contradicts its original theory and has gotten out of hand. And then Gary's paper says, well, if you read Chenery 2, it was much more reasonable than people think today. It was limited. They said they were applying the statute in the adjudication, but it's evolved into a doctrine uh, that's become unwieldy and that gives too much authority to agencies. So is it just a coincidence that these evolve? Is the nature of the law in this area that uh, doctrines will gravitate toward more deference to agencies? Um, or what explains or what explains the expansion of these sorts of doctrines? Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a very, very fascinating and deep question. I, I'm not sure that it it is explicable in terms of movements towards deference as opposed to a general notion of how snippets and comments and opinions morph into doctrines. I mean, this. think about Matthews versus Eldridge, right? Uh, I wasn't creating a doctrine, but within three years, it's a doctrine. Why? Well, it, it, it's because courts have to decide cases, and they have to decide a whole lot of cases. And most of the cases that they have to decide are really, really boring. And lawyers have to write briefs. So you need something that you can structure an argument around. And if you're a judge, you need something that will get the damn case off your desk so you can get on to the interesting ones about nude dancing and the First Amendment, right? So, uh, I, no, I, I think it's a, just a general point about how doctrine develops. Doctrine. <laughs> I mean, no, sir, no. I mean, am I, am, I, am, I, am I wrong, Your Honor? I mean, doctrine develops because... Of the realities of the of the life of, of judges, it doesn't dictate the direction that the doctrine develops. But it's not surprising that cases that were not nobody imagined for a moment were going to be the founts of doctrine um, turn turn into them. Uh, that doesn't. I don't think that's shocking at all. But that, yeah. that would be a very very. This is way beyond my depth. I'm not a. I'm not someone who studies judicial opinions and the judicial process and that sort of thing. But that's my that's my intuition. I mean, I, the only data I have is I was actually clerking on the D.C. Circuit when the Chevron Doctrine was created. Uh, that was created by the lower courts. It was not created by the Supreme Court. Supreme Court was much much later to the party. Uh, they didn't have anything that we would call a Chevron doctrine until the early 1990s. And by that time, the lower courts had already, already fashioned it. He helped. Um, the local, there were, there were a whole bunch of DC circuit law clerks, uh, that, that navigated up there, uh, uh, from a whole lot of chambers. Um, anyway, that, but I, I, I think that's the dynamic is courts have to, courts need things to decide cases and doctrine helps you decide cases. I think there also may be a little bit, and I have not seen empirical studies on this, but I think some judges do apply Chevron the way it was designed. I think others who may be lazy or maybe have inundated with cases and think this is an easy way out uh, travel that route. Um, I have not seen studies that actually say how many times that Chevron 
um, the application of Chevron goes beyond as it was in that case. What's the source? A plant or just one smokestack? I mean, how the hell is a judge going to decide that? Come on. Um, okay, I had another question, I guess, about the major questions doctrine. So it kind of struck me during this discussion that Gary said, well, I don't like the major questions doctrine. I would just strike down the, con- the statute as unconstitutional. Uh, if it's unconstitutional. <laughs> if it is, in fact, and, unconstitutional. And, and you, had, you had said the major questions doctrine <laughs> is bad, but, you know, if the non-delegation doctrine came in, we'd be in real big trouble. Yeah. Uh, and Adam had said that he liked the major questions doctrine because it was lighter touch. So is it actually oh, that a kind of incremental move? Like, is it is it is it more of a compromise position than maybe other... Uh, you know, other possible outcomes or applications of non-delegation doctrine in this case. Does that mean the Roberts Court actually is moving more slowly than you're, you're suggesting? I don't want to buy that. <laughs> I don't want to buy into that. Um, I, I think, um, I don't think it's a compromise. I don't think it's a, it's a, um, a step towards that I think it's a different it's a different concept. Um, I, Adam, you you and I agreed in some part on this. Help! <laughs> You're on your own, skunk. Fair's <laughs> no. fair. Yeah. Want to take another question? Well, I was just going to throw one thing out on that. I, I, my, this is a guess, and, and if I was good at guessing the outcomes of court cases, I'd be rich, and I'm not, so mm-hmm. take that for whatever it's worth. I, I suspect the major questions doctrine is not going to be applied in enough cases to make much of a difference how we turn out to think about it. Almost all the cases that come into the courts, particularly the lower courts, are minor questions cases. Yeah, the Supreme Court's going to take the cases that it's going to think of as major question cases. That's like, what, four or five a year max, tops, in a big year. Uh, so we're talking about a very, very tiny, almost insignificant fraction uh, of what goes on in the administrative law world. I, I think this is... Four uh, last year? Yeah, that, that was huge. Yeah, that it was, was. enormous. Uh, very it's, disruptive. It's, uh, go, uh, go stability. But uh, I don't think it's going to matter much. Uh, yeah, why doesn't anyone with questions come to the microphone? Just, just line, up, line up at the microphone, and then we'll take, we'll take those questions. No, it is. Well, no. Um, just a very brief, like, I guess, to exactly what you said, Professor Lawson. Um, empirical question, like, has a lower court ever declared something to be a major question? Like, I feel like that would be an immediate inquiry that we should do. Fifth Circuit just did. Fifth Circuit just did. One of my favorite major questions cases is from a few years ago. Again, when Kavanaugh was still on the D.C. Circuit, I think it was called Loving versus Treasury or Loving versus U.S. And he sort of digressed on whether tax preparation, tax preparers, is such a big issue that the Treasury Department's or IRS's assertion of authority to regulate tax preparers is a major question. You know, on the one hand, it doesn't really seem like that major of a thing. On the other hand, the tax preparation industry is extremely consequential, very expensive. We'll see them for the next two months standing on the curb with their Statue of Liberty, you know, signs saying, come to your tax preparation here. So I think there's a real question over whether the major questions doctrine is going to look more like the major rules doctrine that Kavanaugh started to sketch when he was on the D.C. Circuit in cases like net neutrality and clean power plan, or if it really is going to be 
just the most significant cases, which is, you know, vaccine mandates during a global pandemic. Hello, my question is for you, Professor Katzen, um, about the point of expertise and ideology. Another professor in this room gave a speech a few months ago where he said that if they're experts, why do we need three from one party, two from another? And I'm curious if you think ideologically driven experts is a particular problem, given how divided our country is politically. And if so, are we at a point of no return? And if not, how do we get out of this problem? That's very, it's a very interesting question. Thank you for that. Um, I guess I, I would start, um, and, and you're sitting next to Judge Rao, who had the same job that I did. Uh, I had it in the Clinton administration. She had it during, um, uh, President uh, Bush, President Trump. Sorry, <laughs> no, you are not. That that is that is for sure. That is for sure. Um, and it, it was it was interesting to me. We were reviewing regulations. Forgive the digression, but I think I'm answering your question. We were reviewing regulations from um, all of the executive branch agencies, and what the staff did was the analysis. That's where the expertise was. They were able to look at the economic cost-benefit analysis. They were able to look at the technical side. They were look at the scientific side. Um, they were doing the expert evaluation, saying this is supported, this is not, etc. And they would present that material to the judge and or to me and say that's that's what the aspects of this issue are, but they could be overridden by policy. Uh, the policy of the president, the policy of the administration writ large, uh, or as we might see it, the policy of the legislation which delegated to the agency. And in that sense, it's not pure expertise. And it's particularly when it's in the executive branch, it's not party-driven. It's um, You're much too young to remember a wonderful uh, television show that was called, uh, had Sergeant Friday, Dragnet, and, and he would interview the uh, victim and say, the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And that's that's where the expertise, I think, plays out in the administrative state. It also plays out in that many of the agencies are uh, in enforcement, seeing how the um, agents, how how the regulated entities are trying to get around the regulation, and whether this way is legitimate but this way isn't, and suggesting variations or amendments to the regs to cut off some but not all of those. That that's the kind of expertise that I think is so valuable uh, in these agencies. Okay, well, we're now more than 10 minutes past the official end time for this panel, so I think maybe we'll have further discussion at the end, but we need to adjourn. Uh, please, you want, you want, can we do one last question? Okay, one last question, uh, Richard. To Gary, um, I always thought that it didn't matter how you did it, but generally it's a classic case of taking money from one party and giving it to another, whether you do it by administrative rule or by uh, individual ad hoc decision. So I hope you think that Chenery 2 was wrong, but I wasn't sure. What? Okay, okay, I wanted to make sure. 
I mean, because, okay, now, respect the salary. I'm going to say the following. Um, I think that administrative law suffers from the following incurable defect, which is people try to do it without learning anything about the science and making independent judgments on it. So I work in two particular areas, one on global warming and one on the stuff having to do with COVID, and I would just make the following observation. Everybody in the administration has committed such grievous breaches of the standard rules that most of them belong in jail. If you look at what is said, for example, by way of disclosure for the CDC for its vaccine stuff, it's one step in statements. It is inconsistent with everything that is known in the doctrine of informed consent, everything known with respect to the doctrine of product liability and the duty to warn cases. And what happens is the government gets a complete cast. Uh, there is no person more ignorant on global warming than John Kerry, and why it is that one should defer to that man is the thing. So the question one really wants to ask is if you have people in government who are politicized in a very deep way and who do things which you think, or at least I think, are wrong on the science stuff, should I defer to them on the science? Because what is characteristic, there is nothing in either of these people groups that have actually tried to answer the objections that have been raised by other people, including very distinguished scientists in both areas. So I think that the administrative model has become completely corrupted to the extent that it talks about expertise as some indefinable quality, and I think, therefore, that deference is never deserved to a group of people who have very strong political agendas. And even on other kinds of questions like student loans, I think it's a simple scandal that you have a standing doctrine which prevents a challenge for major transfers of wealth. It's a major question, doctrine, and so forth. So I, I just don't understand why one has any deference to any of these people, given their performance in recent years. I would expect applause from many of you <laughs> <clears throat> at the end of that. Um, and I, given the lateness of the hour and the very serious uh, difference of opinion that exists, Let's applaud the differences of opinion. And I would ask you only to consider that there are lots of people in government who are very smart, very responsible, very serious, that the nature of the bureaucrat bashing, which has taken place for political purposes, sucks big time. I think I'm going to revert to, to the original position that we should continue this discussion informally after the panel. Please join us. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Adlaw Center.